this is weird. <laughs> there's, there's something. What the hell? Is my earphones hooked up to something else? There's another. Somebody else is talking on this thing. I, <laughs> I think the weird is the perfect place to start it. Yeah, but yeah. But, <laughs> but that's not supposed to be. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. And this is an especially long-awaited episode. I feel like I say that with a lot of these, but this one in particular involved a lot of phone tag and running into Dennis McKenna at psychedelic conferences and even before I started this podcast, I almost got a job with Dennis's plant medicine-based biotech startup incubator. So you might say that this one has been growing its mycelium underground for quite some time before it sprouted the fruiting body of this conversation. And what a treat it is to share with you because... Frankly, I think this is a deeply underserved area of discussion. There's a lot going on in the press right now about the possibility of psychedelics as an adjunct to therapy, as a form of medicine. But a lot of the original discourse around psychedelics in the middle of the 20th century was around how they could be used by scientists, how their effects on human consciousness made them especially valid and vital scientific instruments that could be used to explore what LSD psychotherapist Stanislav Grof calls non-ordinary states of consciousness. And not just in some weird, dispassionate, detached, modern, aloof way, but in the spirit of the early scientists, the alchemists and their inheritors, the natural philosophers. All of these people were intensely committed to the courageous task of self-experimentation, coming hot on the heels of our pre-modern immersion in religious cosmology. Early science was relatively humble about what it could accomplish, about our place in the scheme of things. Not so caught up in a quest for ultimate or absolute knowledge or control. And we may be trending back towards that. I think one of the great themes of this podcast is how the last century of ecology, neuroscience, cybernetics, systems theory, etc., has made it clearer than ever that we are not in control, that we can't know everything, and this privileged position that modernity pretends to, the view from nowhere, so it looks like our descent into whatever comes next will be punctuated by a new scientific paradigm, one that experiments upon the subject and subjectivity and experience and deals in qualitative data, a science that celebrates the convoluted fractal boundaries between everything and everything else in which there is no clear inside or outside, in which the future may influence the past and the will exerts some small but statistically significant impact on the outcome of random events. 
Yes, we are living in strange times, but we are rising to the challenge of being strange enough to understand them. And in this, a new psychedelic science will emerge. The problem is, we don't know who these freaking people are. Surely there are folks out there doing this. If you are one of these people, as curious as I am to explore the weird horizons of psychedelia with an evolving and ever more rigorous scientific method, if you are as turned on as I am about the possibility of answering some of our deepest questions, our most persistent mysteries, then please email me. I have created an encrypted email account specifically so I can meet and possibly even coordinate some of the people stepping out ahead on this frontier. If listening to this episode inspires you to share a story about your own psychedelic science, then please get a hold of me at futurefossils at protonmail.com. That's the no eavesdropping channel. And I'll be delighted to get your mail. But first, I want to give a shout out to the 127 Patreon supporters who are keeping this show afloat. Patreon facilitates something like the Wood Wide Web of interspecies symbiotic relationships, shuttling nutrients from organism to organism underground in the forest. With everyone's contributions, be they two, five, ten dollars, or whatever. Y'all help channel and focus the nutrients of the soil up into the mighty oak of this show. Or, you know, it will one day be a mighty oak. Or actually, maybe the show is more like a fig. You know, they've got all those bizarre symbiotic relationships with tiny wasps and stuff. Anyway, I'm rambling. I love you guys. Thank you all so much. Go to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield if you would like exclusive episodes and other fun perks. And also, even if you aren't a subscriber, you'll find a ton of interesting free stuff there. So enjoy. And another quick thank you to the 100 people who have reviewed this show on iTunes. Thank you so much. Keep them coming. It really helps get this show into the ears and minds of everyone who will appreciate it, even strangers. And it is for strangers. It's not just for us. Come on. You were a stranger once. Leave a review. It helps. Okay. This is a fresh and different episode. I'm really glad I get to share it with you. If you like this stuff, I recommend going back into the archives, checking out episode 58 with Shane Moss. Also, episode 27 with Michelangelo. Maybe 85 with Charles Eisenstein if you're more interested in the critique of modernity than you are in the trip reports. And of course, the biggest thanks to Dennis McKenna for joining us for this awesome conversation. Everyone, be sure to go to ESPD50, that's 50.com. Check out the book that he just finished editing, The Ethnopharmacological Search for Psychoactive Drugs, 50th Anniversary Edition, an extraordinary two-volume tome, a compendium of ethnobotanical research. Super, super fascinating. And of course, thanks to transhumanity.net for being the featured sponsor of this show. Go check them out as well. Okay, that's it. Everyone enjoy this episode and I'll see you again next week. 
Dennis McKenna, thank you so much for joining us on Future Fossils. Thank you for inviting. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so, how shall we begin? This is, is one of those things where I've been wanting you on the show for over a year, and I've had all these thoughts about these conversations and where we would take it and where we would start. But I feel like now that we're here, now that we're in the moment, the most important thing that I can think to ask you is, what do you imagine for the future of a science informed by the epistemological weirdness of the psychedelic experience? Like, how can we weave psychedelics into the experimental protocol and come up with new designs? Well, you don't start with the easy questions, do you? <laughs> Maybe we should wait? <laughs> should we, no, should we no, back out? I mean, I mean, let's just plunge right in, you know? I mean, uh, that's fine. We, we, uh, we may not get any further than, than this in an hour and 15 minutes or whatever. But, <laughs> you know, but I think it's an excellent question and, and actually a fairly serious question. I think we all know about the psychedelic experience. We all know what it does for us therapeutically and, you know, and spiritually and all of these things, right? And the reason that it does that, I think there's general consensus now that it's this ability to disrupt what is now being called the default mode network, mm. you know? And at some, at some in, at earlier points, it disrupts what I used to call the reality hallucination. You know, the, this sort of construct that you create, that your brain synthesizes and, and presents to you as though it were the real world. It's not the real world. It's a model of the world that happens to have a very practical purpose. It, 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 it's more of a set of filters, you know, to keep most of the real world out because <laughs> you'd be so confused you know there would be so much information pouring in you couldn't make any sense out of it you know so this default mode network is a series of you know it's a set of behaviors kind of with the ego at the center this entity or this component of it that thinks it's controlling things of course it's not but it helps the delusion if you think that it is and it's really a set of patterns. It's a it's a way to respond to the world in, you know, in an expected manner. Uh, it assume and you know it is based a lot on past experience, pattern recognition, and then projecting that to your current present state and your expectations for the future. Right. In other words. It, it's based on learning, and, and, and as we get older, our default mode network becomes ever more elaborate and ever more sort of rigidified and ossified as well, you know, because we, we get older and, and we learn more and we've, we've had more experience, more, you know, more situations in which we've had to respond and develop behavioral or other appropriate responses to situations. But as we get older, we encounter fewer and fewer of those that are not familiar, right? So it's sort of like for us old guys, 
like me, not you. You you know, you're still young. But for us old guys, it's like, yeah, I've been here before. I've seen it all. I've been here, done that. I know what this is about. And I can flip through my Rolodex of appropriate responses and pull out a card and say, oh, this is what you do. You know, when this shows up, then this is how you respond. And you more or less navigate your way through the world that way, right? And psychedelics temporarily disrupt this whole illusion that you create for yourself, this little bubble that you live inside that is this comfortable bubble where there's very little novelty. Most of what comes through is familiar and, you know, you know how to deal with it. And it's a little boring, but it's also not threatening, you know. So <laughs> so that that's how you experience it, right? And what psychedelics do is they temporarily disable that. They let you literally step out of the box temporarily. And that's a good thing for that. That's one of the best things that psychedelics do because they enable you to see the world in a novel way, you know, basically, and to understand yourself in a novel way or behaviors in a novel way all of those things and you can you can sort of examine all that from outside the bubble for a while and you can say oh well this you know on a personal level you can say well you know i have these the following unhelpful or destructive habits or behavior patterns you know maybe i should look at those objectively and think about how to change those and be a better person or a more healthy person Okay, so what does all this have to do with science? Well, I think that scientists, like everyone else, possibly more than a lot of people, like to inhabit their comfortable default mode network perspective on the world. You know, and they're even more skeptical than most people when it comes to the question, is there really anything new? Is there really anything we haven't seen? Right. And just by the nature of the default mode network and the nature of scientists to a certain extent, the, the well, I don't want to call it knee jerk response, but maybe it is a knee jerk <laughs> response. You know, the knee jerk response is to dismiss anything which appears to be novel, anything that does not fit into our paradigm of what we think we understand about the world. Well, I think psychedelics can be very useful for scientists because it lets them step out of this box and really look at phenomena in a way that they have never done so before. Long story short is I think the psychedelics, when it comes to science, and what is science? Science is basically an effort to make sense of the world. I mean, in its purest form, it's the search for truth. You know, it's the search for knowledge, but it's a it's a systematic search that, unlike a lot of other searches for knowledge, has a self uh, you know a, a self validating quality, and that you know it can construct ideas or notions about the way things are, but then those hypotheses can be tested and rejected or revised. That's ideally how science proceeds. So psychedelics give scientists 
it's like another instrument. It's like another scientific instrument, like the telescope or the microscope. They're essentially a lens through which you can examine the world, phenomena, the 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 uh, you know matter of that science investigates in a way that you've perhaps never looked at it before. And so you're likely to notice things about it that you've never noticed before because our filtering mechanisms filter those things out and we're conditioned to assume that they're a certain way. But if you can disable that, you can look at a phenomenon, maybe something that you've examined hundreds of times before, but you can see aspects of it that you never noticed. And that's extremely valuable, you know, because, uh, you know, you can gain insights uh, about how it might work that you normally won't even come in, into the sphere of your attention mm. because it's all been filtered out. And so I think, I think that uh, psychedelics can be very valuable in that respect as a, as a tool that scientists can use to look at things slightly different or sometimes a radically different point of view than they normally look at it. And, and the person that has written about this quite eloquently, I think, is uh, Simon Powell. Uh, if you know him, if you know his work, he wrote The Psilocybin Solution. He writes about magic mushrooms, mostly he wrote The Psilocybin Solution. The sec his second book was uh, Darwin's Unfinished Business. <laughs> How Intelligence Manifests in Nature, or something like that. And the third one was called The Magic Mushroom Explorer. And I think those are the only books he's written. He's obviously preoccupied with mushrooms, but <laughs> it, it's a good thing to be preoccupied. And, and in his third book, he talks about this, uh, how psilocybin experience can be viewed as a kind of scientific instrument. You know, and I think I think that's right. I think if more scientists would take more mushrooms and go out and examine whatever their topic of investigation is, it would uh, it would expand the um, you know it would be it would expand the fields. Mm. And it being the nature of science. Again, you have a check on that. I mean, the question is, you can have these insights while you're loaded on psilocybin or, or whatever. The question is, the next morning, do these ideas still stand up? You know, do they still seem valid, or was it just some crazy fantasy? But there is a way to check that, you know. And, and so I think that's a very valuable tool, you know, for expanding our apprehension of nature. Hmm. So there's a lot in there. Uh, you know, you, you talk about... I the, warned you. <laughs> yes, excellent. Well, this is what we're here for. The, the, uh, the, the mushroom as a psychedelic instrument, as a scientific instrument. I like that. The, the idea that it inculcates a new way of seeing seems like it doesn't go far enough, though, because it, what you're saying is that it inculcates a new way of being. That it, by, by disarming the default mode network, by deactivating the self that you take yourself to be on an, on an everyday basis, then you're allowed not an unfiltered, right. But a differently filtered or less filtered or, or, right. you know, dilated view of things. And this creates a new author, right? So, it, you know, when I think about it in terms of 
modernity poses this view from nowhere. You know, it talks about knowledge as just being knowledge. But we know, in large part, thanks to psychedelics, we know there is no view from nowhere. We know that the self is, a, in, at least in one perspective, a chemical event, right? And that there's right. this, this uh, infinite matrix of causation. So what happens when you, when you take psychedelics is that you become, I guess, like you, you, you move to a different perspective and then you get into issues of like state-specific memory, you know, and you get into issues of, I don't know, like it seems as though we're going to have to devise new protocols that it's, it's not just about can someone take mushrooms, come back, report their findings and have them confirmed, not just right. the mushroom as an aid, right, to uh, creative thought, but to take groups of people into these spaces together to perform scientific activity, third person validation, empirical rigor in the psychedelic experience where your subject has been altered. And I'm curious how, you know, this is, this is a, uh, a serious assault on, not on science proper, not on science as a process of constant exploration and confirmation and discovery and verification, but on science as it is practiced now, like you said, by that sort of rigid social default mode network of the institution itself that right. regards the subject as not something to mess with. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, those, those frameworks are, are going to exist. And that's, I mean, in, in a way, it's unfortunate because it does constrain discovery. It, 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 you know, science is uh, all too ready to dismiss findings if it doesn't agree with what they assume is uh, already established and pretty well accepted and understood. And then something along that really comes along that really doesn't fit that paradigm. And science's immediate, you know, sort of response to that is to be dismissive and to, you know, push it away. And it's like, you know, which is really an abrogation of its responsibility. The job of science is to investigate, to seek knowledge at the frontiers of what is known. So you've got to expect some surprises are going to come up, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole point, right? And, uh, and, and you know, uh, so, but science, uh, you know, especially institutionalized science and reductionist science can get very dogmatic about, well, more maybe arrogant is a better term, about what they think they know. And actually, if you step outside that conceptual box, you realize... They don't know much. You know, there is really, despite the vast scope of scientific knowledge, most of what there is to know is outside of that. You know, with scientists, I mean, they hate that, but that's the truth. And so there's no place in science for arrogance. There's a lot of place for, uh, you know, there, there should be more humility and a more, rec a more recognition really of how limited our knowledge is. And that is that is a good thing, you know, because it means there's a lot more left to learn. But it also means that if you're involved in defending the status quo in science, this happens with anything else, then, yeah, you should feel threatened. 
because psychedelics, one thing they do make clear is the limitations of our knowledge, you know, of what we think we know, as well as getting you, getting us beyond that conceptual box that uh, that everyone lives in, and the science, scientists live in it too. So, you know, it, this is... Uh, this is kind of deep territory because in order to talk about these things, you you have to use English, you have to use terminology, and the terminology is often applied very loosely <laughs> and without a lot of thinking about you know these terms. I mean you're talking about epistemology and and uh you know, phenomenology and those sorts of things. I mean, and for example, this comes in in these discussions now very popular about the entheogenic entities, the DMT entities, this mm. sort of thing. Well, you know, are the DMT entities real, right? This often comes up, okay, so, number one, what do you mean by entities? Number two, what do you mean by real? You know, uh, and people, are they inside or are they outside? What do you mean by inside? What do you mean by outside? And one thing that psychedelics make clear is that all of these terms are loose and imprecise and, and actually constructions uh, of this default mode network that we construct for our convenience and survival and we've come to think about these things. But psychedelics teach us, other things teach us, well, no, there really is no inside and outside. There really is no real and unreal. There's no separation between us and... Oh, no. ...develop a new way of thinking about stuff, you know? So I remember reading Charles Eisenstein talking about his critique of the reproducible experiment, uh-huh. you know, that it's basically just that if you run the experiment again in two weeks, it's going to be a different lunar phase that there's always something that we're not considering. Right. And, you know, and then you've got on the other side of that conversation or the same side of the different angle of it, you have Richard Doyle in Darwin's pharmacy saying that the psychedelic experience might better be described as the ecodelic experience because it manifests the folding over of everything into everything else of an ecosystem. You know, it, it reveals the self as imbricated in this totality. And right. it seems like it, together those provide, present, like what you're talking about, the, you know, pushing forward with science into a sufficiently differentiated and nuanced discussion of these things requires us First, to acknowledge that the experiment changes the scientist, right? And then, right. and then, second of all, that the experiment cannot properly be reproduced, which takes apart the idea that the, the sort of pretense that science is about cause and effect, and it has to sort of retreat back to correlation. It, it seems like this is where magic and science come back together because you end up with basically just a sort of a rigorous correlation rather than, you know, a this, then that. So I'm, I'm curious, like what kind of statements about 
you know, what kind of facts come out of a psychedelic science that regards the real and the unreal as, you know, insufficiently nuanced? Well, uh, I don't, I don't know, I don't know that a set of different facts come out of it, but a different understanding of of what you can observe comes out of it. You know, if you look at it from that perspective, it requires a new way of thinking about it in a certain way. And, you know, science, yeah, it's based on the replicable experiment. And as you pointed out, every moment is different. This was the crux of Terence's idea with the time wave, which in most respects, I, I think it's bunk, but I think there are certain you know, aspects of that theory that were correct. I mean, I think that the idea that novelty does ingress into the continuum, and there really are new things under the sun. Every day, new things that never have occurred before in the history of the universe happen. You know, but forget it, the time wave does not describe the ingression of those things. I mean, but... This is not Terence's theory. This is pure Whiteheadian philosophy, you know, process philosophy. But, you know, there are novel things that happen, and it's partly the job of science to explore, you know, what is unknown. I mean, I mean, if it's doing its job, it should be working on the edge of what is known and what is possibly at the edge of what is knowable. There may be limitations to that, too. Mm. You know, and, and and so in order to in this in this new sort of psychedelicized epistemological space that psychedelics force us to graduate into, first of all, we have to carefully examine the way we're thinking and talking about these things. You know, and, and that, and, and in order to, you know, certain things that we took as axiomatic or not. And other things that we may not even be aware of, uh, or only vaguely aware of, suddenly come to the fore in terms of how we deal with our perceptions and so on. Uh, and, and in other words, we have to start thinking clearly when we start using these words like inside, outside. Uh, they don't make sense. There really isn't. Everything that you experience, and, and this is this is like the you know, the fundamental data, I think, of just about everything, maybe everything, is our experience, our experience of the, of the moment. That's really all we have to go on. The future hasn't happened. The past is past. It exists only in our memory. We have this instant of being. That's where we're located. Be here now, right? And so looking at it from that perspective, I think it's possible to say that anything we experience is real in the sense that we experience it. To that extent, it's real. may not have any reality beyond that or outside that, but that's real. That's, that's a piece of, uh, that's a, a datum, and that's the only thing. Well, you know, we're right back with Descartes, basically. I, mean, mm. I think, therefore, I am. Somebody's doing the thinking. Must be me. That's <laughs> <laughs> you know that that's where he was at. 
it's a sort of spurious conclusion, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and he was, you know, I mean, he was, I mean, that was all he could be sure of. I mean, he was, he was content to divide the world into, you know, the inner and the outer. And he said, well, you know, we can, we can look at the outer right there. He's bought into the delusion, but we can separate that from ourselves. We can investigate that. What's, the inner world seems paradoxical, but the inner world was like not subject to scientific scientific investigation as he viewed it. Right. And that may be why we have, you know, now we're trying to, you know, that may be why some of the challenges in neuroscience are, are so daunting right now, because we're trying to make this, we're trying to make this, uh, cross this threshold between what's been called the easy problem of consciousness and the hard problem of consciousness. You know, the easy problem being we can, you know, we can observe the brain from the outside. We can open the window on what's going on in the brain with fMRI, all these other visualization techniques, and we can say, well, this person is having mystical experience of, you know, the cortex is going crazy and the, limbic system is doing this, this part is suppressed, this part is hyperactive. That's all an external explanation. Coming back to your correlation is not causality, but you could say when a person is having this state of mind or solving a math problem or whatever we might be doing inside that fMRI, we can look at it from the outside and say, well, that mental activity appears to correlate you know, to these things going on in the brain. But to cross the threshold between that and our subjective experience, you know, we haven't gotten, I don't know if we forget that. You know, mm. Will we ever have a machine like an fMRI that can actually project our thoughts onto a screen or something? I, I, I doubt it. Mm. I, you know, in this, in words, this, how do you make this connection between these objective observations you can make, what you and I are experiencing right now, as uh, you know, in our subjective world? Right. You know, part of that. Part of that seems to be. Um, when I was in school, I read this this book called "On Becoming Aware." It was uh, co-authored by Francesco Varela, who was the the co-founder of autopoiesis, which is, you know, that, that discipline of how does the cell know its environment? It's mm-hmm. sort of the, the, it's the interior life and, in, you know, the, the quote unquote mind of the cell, but viewed from outside. And right. in that book, they, they pose a very similar kind of gradation to what you suggest here, which is that the first person intuitive sense like the experience you know like the i saw whatever i saw the elves that datum what people would normally call the the anecdote you know that is like the, the plural of anecdote is data or or, or is not that argument right. Right. and then you know so you it seems like knowledge requires a a collaborative building up you know from this well it may be real to you but we can't uninvestigable. And then we get, well, let me give you a concrete example. Uh, 2006, 
and I've talked about this on Eric Davis's show also, this was sort of my initiation into trying to perform uh, rigorous science under the influence of psychedelics. 2006, <laughs> I, uh, I had one of my, my first UFO sightings with a group of friends on psilocybin. And I said, do you guys see that? And they said, yes. And I took off across the field after this thing to get a better look at it. And it was in front of the tree and behind the tree. And I felt like I was being tested. Like I knew on some level that it, I, I was, it was inside me and outside me, but I couldn't put it together. I was like, how could I be over there? And, and then afterwards, everyone, you know, one of the three other people I was with was like, yep, that totally was, I remember seeing that. And then the other two said, I was tripping. That was a plane. That in that that knee jerk dismissiveness that you were talking about, right? So I went back at the into, time. Did it appear to be a UFO to them too? At the time, or, it did, right? Yeah. And, okay. But so I went back two weeks later with a different group of people, and incidentally, that first experience was on a new moon. The second time, okay. two weeks later, on a full moon, I went back with a different group, and I said, "I'm not going to prime you to see anything." You know, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to assume that you're seeing the same thing that I'm seeing and I'm not right. going to, uh, tell you what I'm seeing. I want you to tell me what you're seeing and I'll confirm that that's the same thing. Right. And that night we saw dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And we, we described what we were seeing to one another. It was, it wasn't totally rigorous, but it was a little bit more robust. And, uh, so I felt like we were approaching, you know, we were starting to put the building blocks together of how you could stand on your perch. And this is the thing, right? Is because it seems like it requires almost like it requires holding together, you know, keeping the mind, the rational processes intact and uh -huh. importing them into this space which is innately or inherently sort of opposed to that construction. Right. And, and so I don't know. I mean, how I, I, I have in my mind this, and I was talking about this with Shane Moss uh, when he was on the show, because he was like, there have got to be ways that we can get groups of trippers into these spaces to explore these things together. And, and I know that you're, you know, that you are uh, opening a center dedicated to the exploration of psychedelic science. And uh, I'm curious what your, your well, thoughts are on how certain protocols like this could be explored. And Well, that, yeah, I, I have to say the, the center is, uh, is aspirational at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's going to come together. I mean, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to put a hex on it. There are some people that are interested in helping me acquire this place in South America and the, and the whole idea of having a center like that is exactly for this sorts of thing so that we can explore these things in a place where we, you know, as long as we're not, uh, you know, scaring the horses or whatever, they'll, <laughs> they'll pretty much leave us alone, you know, and, and we can double down and, and really explore these things in a very creative way and, and in ways that, you know, might not be uh, approved in any clinical protocol or anything like that. But, you know, the purpose of this kind of investigation is not to, you know, help 
people. It's it's not a therapeutic goal. It's a it's a goal of really trying to understand something fundamental about consciousness, you know, and and what it is to be conscious, and and and, and these phenomena, like you describe, are exactly the sort of thing that need to be looked in looked into looked at more closely. Because here you have a situation where you saw a UFO, you're convinced. Everyone else, other people saw it. Some are convinced that it was a UFO. Others at the time were convinced it wasn't a UFO. But then the next day, after everybody's off mushrooms, it's, nah, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna commit to that, right? I can't say that. And then you go back again. And it's this is just exactly the sort of thing that you know that you encounter in psychedelic experiences, and and the and the questions that it raises about reality are fundamental. You probably remember the the famous uh, UFO researcher uh, J. Allen Hynek, right, who spent many years investigating UFOs, and he said, "I don't know if UFOs are real." But I know that people have UFO experiences. Those are real. No doubt about it. So then maybe that's kicking the can down the road. What do you mean by a UFO experience? You know, But you do shift the perspective. Is it something real out there that you are seeing? Or should the focus be on what you are experiencing? You know, mm. which is always a synthesis of inner and outer, you know, sensory nerve, sensory data through that sensory neural interface is taken in, and then your brain processes it. This is what the default mode network does, associates it with things you already know, and again creates this this hallucination or this narrative of what's going on. And, you know, and that's the movie that you're living in, you know, from moment to moment. You are the producer, director, scriptwriter, and star of your own movie every moment of your life. If I'm the producer and the director, then I'm, like, ruining my own plays, you know? I'm, like, I'm the scriptwriter, I'm, I'm redacting my own script. It's a right. mess in there. <laughs> yeah, there is a there is a lesson there. I mean, sometimes I do get the feeling that, that you know, I, I mean, some just so often you get seem to be immersed. At least I find myself immersed in a kind of a web of coincidences and weirdness and and just things that seem highly unlikely. And you just have to ask, who's writing this shit? You know. <laughs> Can't they come up with a better plot? <laughs> <laughs> it was like, uh, was it Oscar Wilde has that piece of like either these drapes? His last words were like, "It's either these drapes or me." Yeah, like, something, something like that. Something like that. So, what do you what do you make of synchronicity then? Because this seems very fundamental to this type of investigation, right? Like, yeah. how how do you make sense of there being? Uh, it seems at some point we've crossed, we've, you know, we, we passed the Rubicon into, there's no way I'm just making this up. And yet there's no way I'm just making this up appears to us individually. Right. Right. Well, synchronicity. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it is one of those things. Undeniably it happened. 
effects. And uh, you know, how do you distinguish from synchronicity and coincidence? Mm. You know, this, this is a question. Or are they the same thing? You know, are there really no coincidences? And and when synchronistic events occur, is it the universe kind of laughing at you? You know, kind of saying, oh, there's much more behind this veil than you suspect. You know, here's a hint, right? A lot more going on here than you might think is going on. And, and that kind of speaks to the you know, the idea that consciousness uh, is uh, is kind of fundamental to the continuum. It's not something that's generated by your brain. Your brain is an active processor of information, some of which, you know, but, but I think consciousness is kind of built into the structure of reality. And synchronistic events are something that happens when you just, if you're paying attention, or maybe they happen when you are paying attention, and then you say, oh, synchronistic event, but maybe they happen all the time when mm. you're not paying attention. I mean, it's all about where the focus of the attention is. And that's one of the things that, that psychedelics are good at. You know, we are very good at suppressing, you know, we have... In, in neuroscience, there's these things, even in neuroscience, there's a term called neural gating mechanisms. And neural gating is the threshold that you have to exceed in order for a stimulus to get to our attention, you know, to get through. We're programmed to filter most things out, to suppress them, because they're not relevant to our immediate survival. So those are those neural gates, you know. Psychedelics let us lower those temporarily and, and in some ways bring the background forward. Suddenly the background's important and we're noticing things about it that normally we wouldn't notice. We wouldn't even, you know, it would not seem important. So psych psychedelics can introduce this subtle shift in our perceptions and it changes the way that we see the world and, it, and ultimately it changes in the state, in the psychedelic state, it changes the way we see the world. But then when you come down and you go back to your normal life, perhaps it changes the way that you look at the world even then. If, it, if it's effective, you might say, if it's effective, so you're back down, you're back in this ordinary reality, you know, which is not so ordinary at all, but you've learned something. And maybe what you've learned is there's a lot I don't know. I mean, I mean, just that lesson alone, that realization alone is, is enough. But maybe you come back from those states with some more, you know, with some tools, with, with some more fundamental um, understandings of what it is, what this subjective experience is and how it relates to being in this presumably objective world, and, mm. you know, it's complicated, you know. You just raised a question for me that I used to think about a lot, and for some reason I put it down, but it seems really relevant and timely, which is when I first started tripping, I was like, how can I weave this into my life? Like, how can I make this, uh, how can I 
pull these notions, these insights, these perceptions into ordinary waking consciousness and anchor it in my life. And then, you know, since that, um, I'm in that weird sort of mosaic generation that, you know, the, the World Wide Web happened right as we were kind of coming online as rational minds. Right. And so I remember a world without it, but uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm largely stewed in what I've come to regard as a planet-wide psychedelic experience that, you know, it seems to me like the internet is sort of doing to the global brain that everybody talks about what psilocybin does to an individual human brain, namely, you know, uh, shuffling and reorganizing the barriers and pulling the gates down and opening up all of this, this commerce in there and making the background, pulling the background forward. And so, it's so, almost as though we've exuded, we've exuded our nervous systems, you know, across the entire planet, right? I mean, this is the thing. You can, you, they talk about the atmosphere, the lithosphere, the hydrosphere. We have to start talking about the neurosphere, probably the neurosphere or cybersphere. It's like this externalized nervous system that interfaces with, you know, every other nervous system on the planet you know every other human nervous system as well as a lot of a lot of intelligence that are not human so it it's uh, it's an interesting idea but anyway i didn't right to. right so when like you know timothy morton talks about this too in his book hyper objects he talks about the you know that discovering radiation discovering global warming that these massive things that he calls hyper objects that are so distributed in space and time that we can't see them all at once. You know, right. like the mushroom would be a yeah. hyper object. And he says, knowing them, that it means that there's no longer a, a world because a world requires a foreground and a background. You know, so he talks about the, just mm -hmm. the, re the revelation that we are implicated in these cosmic conspiracies that reach out indefinitely before and after we become aware of them, you know, that we're participating in the body of this like Thomas Pynchon onion investigation is right. it means that the, we, we've sort of let go. We, we can no longer indulge in believing that there is a world in which there's like a, you know, a human world or like the climate of London. The climate of London is now global climate. You know, I am just the focal point of all of the different cultural and genetic activities that have stretched all over this world and have met through my parents and become me. And so in that kind of a, I mean, it basically it's like life these days is inherently trippy as hell. Oh. So how do you think that these, that waking consciousness and psychedelic consciousness are closer now than they used to be? I mean, do you think that we can build a bridge and maybe get some like interstate commerce going on there. Like how, how robust do you think that conversation can get? <clears throat> well, I think it can get pretty, pretty robust. I think, you know, I think that we do learn from our psychedelic experiences. We have real realizations, insights, experiences in that state. And, 
we take what we've learned, at least the memory of those experiences, we take back into ordinary waking consciousness, which, of course, is, is not ordinary, <laughs> really, at all. It's still part of this hallucination we construct. But you take these experiences back into, shall we say, a more, you know, your habitual state. You, you fall back into the default mode network at some point, right? And we have to. The, these systems tend to reconstruct themselves post-psychedelic experience. They pretty much fall back together, which, for which we should be grateful because they, <laughs> they, are, they are the set of behaviors that let us manifest in the world and let us behave in a reasonable way, you know, and uh, get things done like open a can of tuna fish or you know, clean the cat litter, the things that we must do in order to live in this world. Sounds like a toxoplasmosis <laughs> to-do list let's right there. Let's not go there. I mean, that's, that's, a whole, that's, no band, that's a whole other podcast. We might touch on this. But, but, uh, but for now, you know, for now, let's not. <laughs> but, but the idea is that, you know, what you learn when the default when you've temporarily disabled this default mode network, you learn a lot of things. You step, and you don't forget all that when you reconstruct it. You know, you're back into it, but those experiences are still accessible, at least in the form of memories, and you are aware of the limitations of ordinary reality, and, and you remember these non-ordinary states usually very well, you know. I mean, most people remember vividly their psychedelic experiences. I mean, I suppose it depends on how many, but you know what I mean. It's something that sticks with you. The reason these experiences, you know, of the science shows are so profoundly meaningful, you know, like, like Roland Griffith's work has shown, we tend to remember what's profoundly meaningful. I mean, I'll bet you have, I don't want to project anything like <laughs> but, you know, you, you probably had sex with a number of people in your life, right? Fewer than you would have guessed, I'm sure, but yes. Yeah, but you probably remember the first time you had sex. I mean, you may not remember all these other people, or maybe you do, but you probably remember the first time, even though it was, maybe it was horrible, who knows? I mean, I know my first sexual initiation was a, a you know pretty dismal affair, but, <laughs> but I do remember. <laughs> so it's that idea, it's the novelty of it, or it's the, you know, and, and, and in the psychedelic state you experience things from a different way, maybe in a novel way, and you tend to remember those things. And, and so then that gets built back into this default, mode network that you recreate but it has elements in it that weren't there before because you have the experiences that you have to integrate into it so it's expanded it's 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 broader than it was before this is why psychedelics are so useful well they they expand consciousness they expand the mind this is what they've always said and mm. in fact they really do do that you know and they help you to construct a a better default mode network or a better model of the world 
because it might integrate elements of experience that you've never had. And also, it, it, it helps your, you know, it helps the clarity of your perception that this really is kind of a hallucination, you know, um, and you can, you can accept that. You can, you can realize, you, you can sort of realize its limitations and mm. accommodate to that. But just the fact that you've realized it is an accomplishment. In a certain way. Do you think that the loose weave of a psychedelically inspired default mode network is, I don't know how to put this, I guess evolutionarily adaptive to a world as technologically advanced as ours? Because it doesn't seem like, you know, when we're bombarded by updates from all over the world all the time, you know, when uh, everything happens at once. You know, uh-huh. and then we can, but at the same time, also there's a weird sort of planar collapse where the more refined and precise our recording technologies become, the more uh, we can enter sort of high resolution recordings of the past and high resolution predictions of the future. So it's like we're getting, it's, it's sort of a, I don't know, like that double toroid flow where suddenly everything's happening all at once, but then it's also like each, each moment is sort of stretching out further from the other moments in its, in its sort of completeness. I don't know. I mean, it, it, to me, it just seems like there's something about the way that we perceive time in a hyper-connected media environment that induces or requires a kind of psychedelic perspective in order to navigate it effectively. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I think that psych, the psychedelic experience can be a learning tool to help us adapt to this hyper-connected, cybernetic, planetary environment that we find ourselves, this information bubble that everyone is more or less immersed in 24-7. I think that it's a useful tool for to adapting to that and helping us learn to you know surf this wave i think that most people in in this day and age are accustomed to processing on a daily basis probably far more information than most people a hundred you know 50 years ago a hundred years ago maybe even 20 years ago were not used to being bombarded by this much information so we've been faced with this need to adapt, and I think that uh, the psychedelics are part of this this evolutionary adaptation. You know, Marshall McLuhan. You, you ever hear of him? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, he famously said psychedelics are models of electric culture, and I think he had I think he had it about right. You know, they are in a way now. That's for us. What they are for, you know, an Australopithecine or somebody like that. I mean, but, you know, they didn't have to deal with that. But they had other challenges in their environment. And uh, just because they didn't have this uh, overexpressed technology and all that, people immersed in nature, you know, indigenous people or prehistoric people, there's no system more complex than nature. 
So I think that psychedelics were adaptive tools for them as well. Mm. You know, well, for one thing, they didn't have, you know, they didn't really have these default mode networks constructed in, in quite the same way we did. So they were more open to begin with. But part of that may have been the psychedelics. And, you know, part of that adaptation was probably that. Uh, but, you know, for us, it's like it's almost an essential tool for survival now. I mean, just because of this very complex uh, hallucination that we've constructed that, that not only we live in, but the entire species lives in. And I, so I don't know. What, what do you think about the idea that the world is a simulation? Oh, is this taking another a, rabbit hole that we're taking an elbow down? into the, uh, well, I mean, that's a very fascinating, I, I tend to, I, I think about it as a Copernican, you know, like as a scientist, I adopt a Copernican mentality, which is total, total denial of human exceptionalism or exceptionalism of any kind. You know, if we exist, therefore, someone else must, you know, if this universe right. exists. And so it, it, I, I find it, I, there are a lot of ifs in that, like the way that Nick Bostrom puts together his like version of the simulation hypothesis. But I mean, just like there are a lot of ifs with uh, like the, the, the Drake equation about how likely, you know, intelligent alien races are. But right. if you, we know that there's one, like I just can't fathom it, a world in which there's only one for the same reason that it seems like physics is obsessed with finding like the shortest equation to explain the whole universe. And it's like, well, the yeah. shortest equation would explain a multiverse because then you don't have to explain why it's this way and not this other way. Right. You know? And it, so it seems right. like, seems to me parsimonious to suppose that we live in a simulated universe, even though that brings infinity along for the ride. You know, well, what about you? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I am I am fascinated by the idea, you know. Uh, but the question is, how do you test a hypothesis? I mean, that like that. That seems like the old ultimate step out of the box challenge. Mm. You know, how can you step outside this simulation in order to determine if it is a simulation? I mean, uh, I am not sure how you go. It's the same problem a lot of how do you step outside your own consciousness in order to, you know, look at it from the from the outside. Again, this this term, which is just meaningless, but to look at it from some perspective, that's not, uh, you know, uh, integral to what you're trying to look at. And I think this is the, this is the perpetual conundrum of, that science has. You know, there is really no such thing as objectivity. You know, it's funny, you know, uh, I don't know if you've seen these experiments where they take a person and they put them in VR goggles and then they put a camera 10 feet behind them and induce an out-of-body experience with virtual reality. Like the, the people who actually see themselves as though they were standing behind themselves report the phenomenological experience of being outside of their own body. 
And I have not, I have not seen those experiences. That that sounds very disturbing. To yeah. Me. <laughs> well, yes, indeed, right. But but I think you know maybe there's something something in there about um, how do you. You, you can't get out of the subject, but you can get out of your subject and into someone else's, maybe. You know? I mean, right. like, ayahuasca used to be called telepathine. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, that's, that's where things get really frothy and interesting for me, is in the notion that it's not just the individual moving through different states of consciousness performing scientific research, but the possibility that we could actually link minds and form new layers of like meta individuality that would then like i saw when uh you got up a moment ago i saw that you had ramiz nam's book nexus on your shelf yes have you read that i do (laughs) yes so there you go like that's you know this idea of like using nanobots to link people's minds into a, a sort of group identity seems like some of the stuff that i've been hearing what is, what's the word? Um, apocryphally about the experiments that people are doing with like 5-MeO-DMT in groups, you know, where mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're going mm-hmm. in and trying to form, it's almost like a, like a magical ritual, you know, where they, the, the hermeticists would form the egregore and invoke this group angel or identity to, to descend into them and sort of bond the group. So I, I know we're like, we're on an hour here, but I usually like ending it with an invitation to speculate. And so this seems like a good place to speculate about what you think the future of the human condition or the human practice of knowledge discovery, or even like what the human self might be given everything that we've talked about. And, uh, it seems to me we've been wildly speculating since the, <laughs> since this thing started. So, oh, yes. you know, which is wonderful. Nitro I mean, booster. This is great. It's very, it's very loose and free flowing. I like this, but what you come away from all this discussion ultimately is, you know, you come back down to, well, nobody knows. We don't know, you know, and it's okay to say we don't know because that's true. That's an honest thing. And that's great. We're in the, in the process of exploring what we don't know. I mean, so it's kind of a, if there's anything axiomatic, it's that our knowledge is limited. Mm. And, you know, we don't know very much and we can't even be sure of what we think we know. So that's okay. As long as we are comfortable with that, then, you know, we proceed. What does this mean for the future of humanity? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I think that your example of this, you know, melding these minds and this sort of thing, I mean, this goes on in group psychedelic sessions all the time, as I suppose you probably have experienced yourself in ayahuasca sessions. This is not uncommon. The question is how much of it is kind of you know, how can you be sure that this is really taking place? How can mm. you, you know, you look at it later and you say, well, you know, I think we were seeing the same things, uh, feeling the same thoughts or whatever, but in the stone-cold, sober light of dawn, it's sometimes very hard to say. Um, but there are a lot of, all this neurotechnology is, I mean, it, it holds out the possibility of that 
kind of thing. But here I think we uh, and maybe this is good, maybe this is where we need to go, but we're definitely at the interface of something I talk about all the time, it's kind of a rant of mine, <laughs> which is that our cleverness is out of sync with our wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know, and we can manipulate all kinds of technologies, but do we have the wisdom to use them the proper way? And what is the, you know, we have, a lot of these things have to have moral clarity in order to be used, or sometimes the moral clarity tells you, don't use this technology, even though you can, you know, and not so much thinking about mind-melding techniques and things like that, but that would be one of those things. Mm. Uh, and, and you probably can do that. Uh, is it desirable to do that? And, and moreover, you, you know, any technology that we can invent will be used by somebody to do something. And we can't really assume that they have a moral clarity. Does any of us have a moral clarity about using them? But there's the, you know what I'm saying? You yeah. have to, you have to bring our, we have to be, we have to become wise, you know, um, a big part of the existential mess that we find ourselves with, uh, you know, faced with on this planet is the fact that we've deployed all of these technologies very unwisely, very thoughtlessly. Now we're faced with a whole bunch of needs to make decisions and options, and we have to get smart. I mean, you know, and unfortunately there's not a lot of time left. We have to do it quickly. We have to quickly wise up and figure out how to make our pass. Know, which we've largely created through thoughtlessness. So maybe, maybe better than asking you what you th- see coming is to ask what you hope to see coming. What is the best possible world that? Because I think about this in terms of you know maybe the future. This is something that I've definitely come out of my own independent studies as an independent researcher in the emergent field of the other psychedelic science with this, mm-hmm. this uh, provisional conviction that there isn't a single future, that there are futures, and that these futures may even make efforts to get us to pay attention to them, to steer into them. And so right. if we, if, you know, starting from there, if you were to create an attractor, not at the end of time, you know, but just another one, just another stone along the, the path. What is the one that you would hope would amass the most attention and actualize itself? Well, I think, you know, the difference between the past and the future and the fact that one big difference, other difference is the fact that we're always at this nexus of now, you know, that is, and the past is past in our perception, our memories. It's fixed, right? It happened. We assume again, <laughs> you know, like everything you say, you have to hedge your bet. But the future is always multiple futures, right? Multiple timelines that you might choose to go down, or maybe you have no choice. But you know, it's the the realm of quantum indeterminacy. You know, where the waveform hasn't yet collapsed. 
you know, so therefore anything could happen, you know, and, and we would like to think that we have some degree of control in, in terms of determining this direction or we can make a decision to go that way or this way or whatever. And, you know, that's the, that's sort of the conceptual space that we operate in. When I think about the, I mean, I think you're right about multiple futures. We're always faced with that. When I, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I just basically hope that we have a future, hmm. you know, some kind of future. And I'm not sure we do, you know. So I'm in a kind of a pessimistic place these days. I mean, you look around and things are so messed up that, uh, you know, this necessity to get smart, that doesn't seem to be happening. And in fact, the, the worse the crisis gets, uh, the crises get, the stupider we seem to become. And, uh, you know, especially the people who are supposed to be making the decisions, you know, I mean, it's just dismaying, you know. So I, number one, I hope there is a future and, and uh, of some kind. I mean, there may well not be, you know, as I say, that forces that were manipulating could bring the whole thing down. It's very fragile, you know, and the earth, the systems that sustain life on the earth are very resilient, but there is a breaking point, and we're pushing a lot of those breaking points, and if we cross the threshold into some situation where these ecological mechanisms are so thoroughly broken, you can see a tremendous impact on the habitability of the planet within a very short time. And I'm worried about that. You know, I'm quite worried about that. So what do you do? I'm not sure, you know. I'm not. But one thing we can do, and this is, this is kind of the path that I've chosen, and a lot of people, is since these psychedelics, these plant medicines, are so far the most effective catalyst that we have to get people to wake up, you know, to actually trigger this global shift in consciousness that is needed, then, then my job is clear. I want to talk to people about it. I want to bring as many people as I can to these medicines in, you know, in environments that are supportive and let them experience it, you know, all without becoming the messiah or anything like that. That's not a role I want to play. It would appeal to some people, but I think that, again, frequently taking psychedelics kind of forces you to be humble. But <laughs> maybe that's just me, because we know lots of people who are not humble, who take plenty of psychedelics. <laughs> and, and I feel like they're not listening. You know, if they were listening, they wouldn't be so arrogant. You know, mm. but, you know, I, I mean, it's kind of a way to uh, kind of a way to sputter out at the end of this conference, but or this conversation, <laughs> I just hope that there is, I just hope that there is a future <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it, it, it supports life on earth. It supports us. It teaches us to be better people, kinder to each other, kinder to nature. And because this is the thing, 
you know, a lot of the, the ills of Western culture is the fact that we've forgotten about nature or we've succumbed to this sort of toxic delusion that we don't need nature or that somehow we control it exists for, for us to control. No, nature is running the things and running things and it has ways of protecting itself. And it may be that, you know, if this species, this, this, problematic primate that we've evolved into if we become too much of a threat it will find a way to shed us like a dog sheds fleas off its back but hopefully we can wise up before that's necessary i mean that that's what i hope and you have children i will you will have children i will well you know my grandmother told me that many people that she knew when she was young chose not to have children because of the Cold War, because they were convinced yeah. of an atomic disaster. Right, right. You know, and she said, this is, I, this is a conversation I had with her, <laughs> embarrassing to admit, but I, this is a conversation I had with her in like 2010, talking about 2012. Just mm -hmm. being like, why mm -hmm. bother? Mm -hmm. You know, like, isn't it clear that, I mean, even just the, the date as a rhetorical device to point to the converging crises of our age, you know, being like, why bother? And she's like, because life goes on. Because, you know, the, the vested interest, like if the wish fulfilling jewel only answers the wish that will benefit everyone, you know, like that's, right. that's what I kind of, that's, that's my Pascal's wager. Yeah, I, I think those are the kind of wise words that you would hope to hear from your grandmother. You know, <laughs> she's absolutely right. Life will go on. You know, and, and when it comes to life on Earth, I don't worry. I mean, uh, I mean, Gaia is one tough bitch. You know, life is going to go on. Our species, maybe not so much, but you know, life will go on. But and hopefully we can you know, we can uh, achieve a certain wisdom and we can start living, we can under re reframe this relationship to nature that we need to have and start participating in symbiosis with nature and not dominance and not exploitation. If we can get that far, then I think we have a future, which there's no reason why Earth should not be compatible with life for the next five billion years if we get straightened out. Mm -hmm. And and eventually, and I don't think too far in the future, maybe the best thing we can, the, the biggest favor that we can do for life is to get out of here, you know, to get most of our species off the planet. And, I mean, I'm a science fiction fan, so I assume our destiny is in the stars, right? Mm. But, it would be nice if we leave the earth, it would be nice to leave a garden and not a toxic waste dump behind. You know, there's no reason why that can't be so. 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 Amen. On that note, we can <laughs> end this. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dennis. Where, where should people find you? You've got a bunch of events and retreats and appearances coming up. Yeah, where should they find me? Well, they can find my uh, Dennis McKenna public figure on Facebook. So I 
try to keep that updated for events. They can follow me on Twitter, which sadly I've had to, you know, drink the Kool-Aid, I use it, deal with it, <laughs> you know. I mean, I hate it, but it is, it is a good way to get out to a lot of people. So I'm Dennis McKenna 4, just Dennis McKenna 4 on Twitter. People can follow me. Mm, and, yeah, and then the book, which we didn't even get to, you Woo! can look at ESPD 50, uh, you know, or the Synergetic Press. Uh, but those, those areas uh, you can find. I'm not hard to find. Uh, just a moment to drop an ad for this extraordinary book, ESPD 50, which I saw at Synergia Ranch at the, at, at the publishers. Uh, Tango okay. Snyder yeah. showed me this right. beautiful two-volume work yes. of just like extraordinary compendium of ethnobotanical wisdom. So like, I know that, okay, this conversation is officially over, but if you could just speak a moment about this book, I, I'm sure people listening to this would love to know. Sure. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for saying such kind things about it. This is, this is in what's kind of, uh, you know, uh, occupied a lot of my attention over the last year. And what this is, is it's the, it's the proceeding. It, there was the history of it is that in 1967 in San Francisco, the U.S. government, of all people, sponsored a conference called Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. And uh, all the leading people of that day were there, Schultes and Shulgin and Andrew Weil and a bunch of other people you probably never heard of. It was a totally private conference. The only thing the taxpayer ever got for this was the symposium volume that was published, right? And that was published by the U.S. government printing office for years. You could order it. And, you know, nobody ever did, or a few people did, but it was <laughs> not widely known. But anyway, that original book fell into my hands at the age of 17, and it really influenced my whole career in a way, because it was... It made it. It made me aware of the fact that you know there was actually a discipline of ethnopharmacology, and it seemed to have a lot to do with ethnopharmacology of psychedelics. So I was excited by it, and it was very influential to me in my career. Well, the government was supposed to put uh, you know have follow up conferences every ten years or so. This was supposed to be the first of many. That never happened. A war on drugs came along. The government became embarrassed that they ever had anything to do with this. So, you know, time goes on. Anyway, in 2017, everything fell together. You know, I wanted to do a similar follow-up symposium for, for years. I wanted to do one on the 30th anniversary, but it never, never happened. And on the 50th anniversary, suddenly everything was together, and we organized this symposium uh, on the ethnopharmacologic search 50 years, 50 years later. We had this amazing symposium, and we, we live-streamed it on Facebook, right? So unlike the U.S. government, ours was <laughs> open. And actually up to 50, uh, the, some of the presentations were watched by 60,000 people on li Facebook Live. So we had that, 
And then the other idea was, in the spirit of the conference, was to publish, uh, you know, a symposium proceedings. That's what you do when you have a symposium. You're trying to be all scientific and academic and stuffy about it. You provide, <laughs> you do a symposium volume. So we did that. And then we thought, well, let's reprint the original one, which is copyright-free, your property and mine. So... So we did, we redid a high-resolution PDF of the first one, published this thing. And you can order it at Synergetic Press, which, you know, yeah, uh, which you're already familiar with. Which, but with listeners, I'm working on getting more of the Synergetic Press authors onto this show because they just put out extraordinary stuff. They're the, 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 it's the publication company that came out of the group that put together Biosphere 2, and That's the October funny. Gallery in London, like they're they're an epic group right. of people. They they have the uh, uh, Tim Leary's Harvard papers. They've got John Lilly's stuff in there. It's yeah, very cool. No, site. they they publish amazing stuff. They they have reprinted also the Ayahuasca Reader as a deluxe edition. You know, the first one was was very nice, but they've totally you know, redone this. You're probably familiar with this. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff that wasn't in, in the first web. Yeah, and I go way back with those people. My history with them is rocky and checkered <laughs> and peculiar and weird, but they're they're basically very good people. And, you know, we've all matured a lot in the last <laughs> 40 years or something. Uh, if you read my book, I talk about my first encounters with the Institute for Ecotechnics, and, you know, but we're all friends now and they are putting out this book and it's a beautiful book. And I should say, I went on Joe Rogan just before the uh, LA Psychedelic Society symposium, uh, symposium last month, went on Joe Rogan and talked about it immediately sold out. So Synergetics ordered fifteen hundred more copies. It sold more than we ever expected. Wow! Deborah tells me it'll, it'll be ready by the end of this month. They'll be ready to ship. Excellent. So we'll have to be patient. But yes, it's a collector's edition, and I'm really pleased with the way it turned out. And you know, like all these projects, uh, it's not just me. I mean, I had a lot of help financial, moral, organizational, everything from an amazing bunch of great people. You know, so, yeah, check it out. ESPD50.com is easy to remember. People can start there. Take some right to synergetics, basically. Yeah, they have a <laughs> list of all of the contributors on the site, and it's really impressive. You've got, yeah, yeah. I won't even go into it, but it's, it's definitely a site worth checking out. So. Yeah, yeah, it's a great thing. Maybe we'll do ESPD 60 or 70. And, uh, you know, 60th, 70th anniversary, probably the 80th anniversary, I won't care, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> let somebody else be doing that. But anyway, we could go on all night, but it's been really a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dennis. Yeah, yeah, lots of fun, anytime. Absolutely. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network. 
along with Third Eye Drops, Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned because we have some awesome episodes coming up on future fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.